The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Okay, so we've been in the book of Acts, and um, last week we were in chapter 23. Paul is on trial. He's been accused of a lot of things throughout the book of Acts. Um, In this case, it's stirring up riots, causing trouble. Uh, They basically called him a troublemaker and um, have thrown a variety of insults and uh, accusations at him. Um, And in chapter 23, Paul is before the Jewish council, um, which is kind of their local uh, governing body. And, um, And then... We move into chapter 24, and he's moved in front of uh, a Roman official. And the re- some really cool things happen in chapter 23 that I want to review. Um, I want to touch on the three points that Pastor Ellis talked about last week. Um, but the, the most important thing that I need all of us to remember about chapter 23 is in this chapter, Jesus spoke to Paul. He visited him through a time of prayer. It doesn't say exactly. But he made a promise to him that he was taking Paul to Rome. And I need all of us to keep that in mind, to to keep it not just in mind, but at the forefront of our hearts. Because what's happening in chapter 23 and 24 and 25, uh, don't exactly scream, I got this, I'm taking you to Rome. Um, In fact, circumstances around Paul, at a quick glance, look like, Everything's going wrong, right? And so we need to remember that God makes promises. God made a promises. And in Paul's case, he actually spoke to him. It's recorded. So Paul shared this with Luke at some point, and Luke wrote it down because it was that significant. Um, and we need to remember that because it applies not only to this passage, but it applies to us each and every day. Okay? Um, so last week, uh, Ellis had three main points, um, and I'm just going to read them off to you. Hopefully you remember the sermon. If you haven't, uh, this is a great time for me to share with you. You can review those. We podcast our sermons. They are up online. They are available through our church app that you can download on your smartphone and have access to. Um, so take a look at that. I can explain more of that to you uh, after, but review. Um, last week, three main points. The moment of crisis becomes a moment of vision. Paul is arrested. He's accused falsely. Jesus speaks to him and gives him a vision of what is happening. And then we talked about how even in the midst of all of this, Paul's life, his example, the way he responds to his circumstances, the words that he's saying is literally the, the Lord's prayer lived out. And Pastor Ellis asked us, are we doing the same thing? Are we living out the Lord's Prayer each and every day? Finally, he asked, or he stated, God promised Paul that he would be faithful. He promised all of us that he would be faithful. He promised the nation of Israel that he would be faithful. And in this case, what we saw from Paul in his response and his reactions and how he carried himself was that he was so trusting in God's faithfulness that he was determined to be just as faithful back. And that brings us here into this uh, 
chapter, uh, chapter 24. So I'm going to ask Emmeline to come up. We're going to read. Uh, it's, it's a long one. So prepare yourselves. Um, and uh, so keep all of that in mind as we're reading this passage here. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusations, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crimes they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. God bless the reading of the word. All right, so there's a lot happening here. Um, there's a lot of political things happening in this passage. There's a lot of social things happening in this passage, and we're not going to talk about most of them, okay? Uh, the reason for that is that uh, it gets real messy and complicated. But what we do need to know is that 
the religious leaders at this time are seeing over and over again radical change happening in their community, and they're panicking, right? They're panicking. They're afraid, and they're responding because they're losing control. Not only are they afraid, here's a governor of Rome that is afraid. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Felix was afraid. So there's fear all over this passage. There's fear all over the region. Um, Historically, this passage is believed to be based around a time in the Middle East where there was a famine. In fact, that famine was most likely the reason that Paul was back in Jerusalem to begin with. Paul had been on his second missionary journey, had visited Corinth, had visited Macedonia, had visited a couple of other places, had been collecting offerings and gifts to bring back to those in Jerusalem because they were suffering. It wasn't food. It was trying. Everyone was afraid. Right? So Paul is here for a purpose. God brought him back here to minister to his people, to bring gifts, to take care of those in need. And Paul is arrested doing something that simple. In fact, he's arrested while he is in the temple after completing his ceremonial cleansing. He is praying, he is worshiping. It would be like the police busting in right now and taking me away. Or taking one of you away is probably a better description because Paul wasn't teaching at this time. He was just present. Not only did they take him away, they've thrown all of these accusations at him. They're accusing him of causing riots, which if you know Roman history, like worst thing you can do in Rome, uprise. Because they were all about maintaining control. And if you throw an accusation of causing riots and stirring up trouble to a Roman official, they come down with a heavy hand. And so that's what this trial is all about. The potential heavy hand of Rome taking care of the problem that the religious leaders have in Paul. Now, thankfully, Paul was pretty smart. He knew what was going on. He knew that he didn't have, they didn't have claims. They knew that they couldn't prove anything. He knew that he was a Roman uh, citizen, so he had uh, rights. And he responded in this passage within all of those things. But what he didn't do was get freed. At the end here, it says, when two years had passed. So this is two years after the trial with Felix started. And those of you that have been here for the last few weeks know, well, he's kind of been on trial for several chapters. Right? So two years this process is happening. Two years Paul is in a hole in the ground struggling with the promise God gave him that he was taking him to Rome. 
What would you do with that? God spoke to you in a dream or a vision or through prayer or through someone else. He told you he had a purpose for you and he was taking you somewhere. And then you find yourself in a hole in the ground in a Roman prison with a governor that has essentially admitted this is probably not really a real case, but yet you're still in the jail. I can't speak exactly to what's going on with Paul in this moment. I am sure he had many, many hours worth of wrestling with the Lord in that jail cell. I'm thankful that God provided enough that his friends could come and take care of him. um, Because like we discussed last week, Roman jail was not like American jail. They didn't feed you. They didn't take care of you. You were exposed in a hole. So he had friends that were coming and giving him food, that were replacing his clothes, that were taking care of him. He had some level of access to a bath and a meal and to conversation with other people, which those of you that have spent extended periods of time in isolation know, that's a pretty big deal. But... He's still wrestling with the fact that God made him a promise. I'm taking you to Rome, and yet he's sitting in a hole in Caesarea. What do we do when things don't go as expected? Paul here has a presence of mind to continue to respond respectfully with wisdom, with discernment, He's answering questions. He's actually not even pushing the fullness of his rights. He could have demanded that they release him because they don't have any evidence. He speaks to that here in verse 14 or 15. 13, sorry. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. But he doesn't push beyond that. He just acknowledges, hey, this is pretty ridiculous. What are we doing here? So what I want to take us to is verses 16 and 17. Um, Because I think that this is the, the point that we need to see where Paul knew that not only had God, God promised he was taking him to Rome, but he had brought him to Jerusalem for a purpose. And Paul knew that he had walked well. He'd been obedient He was confident in that. And so, like the songs we sang this morning, he trusted that God was going to be faithful. He didn't understand. He didn't know why. He wasn't sure what God was going to. God God said, let's let's read it exactly. In uh, chapter 23, I should have written this down. Give me a second to find it. Uh, I'm not finding it because this Bible doesn't have the red letters. I'll just, I'll just say it, okay? Um, God said, I'm taking you to Rome, right? He, t- he told him that, but he didn't tell him how. He didn't tell him when. He didn't even tell him why. 
He just told him, I'm taking you to Rome. Now, Paul's been uh, walking with Jesus for, historians estimate, about 20 years at this point. Right? Before that, Paul was a Pharisee that studied the scriptures and that devoted every aspect of his life to obeying the law. The same God of Israel he believed was the God of Jesus. Was it, It's all the same. All Jesus did was complete the promises that were found in what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. So he's in the middle of 20 years of walking with God, 20 years of praying, 20 years of persecution. He'd been beaten, he'd been flogged, he'd been run out of cities. 20 years of walking with God and over and over and over again, seeing that even when everything around me is not going as expected, is spiraling out of control, God is faithful. So this morning, I want to ask all of us, do we believe that? Do you trust that God is faithful? Do you trust that God is faithful when nothing is going right? Or do we get mad at him? Do we walk away? Do we reject him? Do we respond in selfishness and say, well, God, since you didn't do this, I'm not going to do this. I'm thankful for examples like Paul. Because he proved, despite his brokenness, it can be done. I wish I did it a little better than I do. I've got to be honest with you guys. Multiple times in my life, Things didn't go as planned, and I got pretty mad at God. And I got selfish, and I got stubborn, and I got prideful, and I said, I'll show you. As foolish as that is, right? How on earth can I show God? Come on. But Paul, at least through Luke's telling, appears in this passage to hold it together. And as we continue to read in 25 and 26 and 27, we know that eventually Paul gets to Rome. It's a pretty messy journey there, though. I won't spoil it, uh, but some, some more things go wrong, to say it lightly. And it takes several more years before Paul gets there. And a shipwreck. That he thought he was going to die. But he gets there. So, scriptures are full of promises that God has made to us. For some of us, we lean into those in moments of trial and, and struggle, and they bring comfort, they bring joy. But for some of us, we visit passages 
And we read them, and it just makes us angrier. Passages like Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is speaking, and he's talking about worry, and he's talking about fear. And he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added to you. God, I've been seeking. I've been doing what you told me to do. Nothing is being added to me right now. How many of us have prayed that prayer? More than once. Matthew 11, he talks about, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What if rest means jail? Because that's what it meant for Paul here. Yeesh. That's not what I'm thinking. (laughs) Jesus says he's going to give me rest. I'm thinking like a fancy bed and, you know, room service. Not a hole in the ground with rats and bugs and rain. Matthew 28 promises, after giving the disciples the Great Commission, something he no doubt repeated to Paul at some point in Damascus experience. He charges them with going to the ends of the earth, and he says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Do you know how to find Jesus in a jail cell? Because he might take you there. Might not, but he might. It's really important for us as believers to not buy into this false truth that has crept into the church that when we become Christians, everything's going to go right. It's all going to be easy, we're going to get every job we ever want. Our children are going to be perfect. There's no more sickness. Each and every one of us knows that probably all of those things have not been true in our lives. All of us know someone that didn't get healed. Or have a sibling or a child that didn't grow up like you had hoped. Does that mean God is not faithful? Does it mean we can't trust him? I heard a really interesting analogy this week that kind of has blown my mind. And I'm trying to use it as a way in these dark moments when I find myself in a jail cell, confused, because I thought God made a promise to me, um, that maybe I'm not seeing correctly. I kind of wish I could pick this rug up this morning because it's actually possible that it could show my example. But if any of you have seen a, a hand-woven tapestry, the beautiful works of art that uh, involve s- strings and thread, when you're looking at the front of them, they're masterpieces of artistry, of craft. But the analogy goes like this. We as humans 
in our brokenness, in our limitations, in our finite understanding, are looking at the back of a tapestry. And not just looking at the back of a tapestry, it's inches away from our face. So close that we can't even see the edges. What we see is threads and chaos and things going every which way and nothing makes sense. But what God sees is the other side of that tapestry in all of its fullness. He doesn't see the little tiny threads. He sees the picture the threads are making. God has promised us that he's going to get us to the finished piece, completion, in Paul's case, Rome. But he didn't promise him it wouldn't be chaotic getting there. And I'm sure for Paul there were moments where he's looking at strings going every which way and he's saying, God, what is going on here? Because he's limited, just like we are. He doesn't fully understand. He doesn't fully see. He can't anticipate. He has no clue all of the other things that are happening to make the picture complete. All he knows, all we know is what's exactly in front of us. And for some of us with better memories than others, what may have come behind. We don't know tomorrow. I don't know what's happening after this church, except that I'm supposed to go out to lunch. I don't know what I'm going to eat. I don't know if it's going to be any good. I don't know. I have a promise of lunch. That's exciting. Right? But for some reason, we approach God differently than I approach lunch. I know it's going to be there. I know it'll probably be good. I may be disappointed. I'm pretty picky about my food. Right? But I don't get mad that I don't know what I'm going to eat and whether it's going to be good or not. I don't get upset about that. I'm not frustrated. I'm not disappointed. I don't accuse God of not loving me. Or in my case, my wife, because she's been working out the details. Right? There's no accusation there that I don't know what's going to happen at lunch. Lunch is coming. That's exciting. And for us as Christians, what would it look like if that's how we lived our lives? We so fully trusted God that we heard a promise, we believed it was going to happen, and no matter what, this world or the enemy threw in front of us, no matter how God orchestrated our path to get there, we believed with the fullness of our being we were going to get there because my God does not fail. What would our lives look like? What would this city look like if the Christians in this city walked with that kind of purpose and power? Because I can tell you this, if I did that, my life would not look as it does. Far too often I live in fear. I allow circumstances like this to let me plead with my accusers 
to have mercy on me, and I compromise myself. And I tell God what to do. And I try to take control, and I move out of the path that he has arranged for me, and I just make things worse. So this morning, all I want to challenge us with is do we trust God even when we're in jail? Because you're going to be in jail at some point. The evil one does not want us to find victory. This world is very broken. God, thankfully, just like in this passage, is in the business of fixing it. God was fixing Paul's problem. He was on his way to Rome. He moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea. This trial eventually gets him sent to Rome for a grand jury, so to speak, in Rome itself. We'll learn about that in the future. Paul got to Rome through the court system. I guarantee you when Jesus told him he was taking him to Rome, that's not how he thought it was going to go. So, for us, do we trust? You want to know what else is really cool about all this that's happening? Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament while he was in jail. Several of his letters to the church happened over these next two extended sentences. So a lot of the faith and the hope and the doctrine and all of the things that we get to benefit from thousands of years later occurred because Paul couldn't do anything else. So what did he do? He wrote to the churches and to the people and to the individuals that he had met on his missionary journeys. He encouraged them. He spoke truth to them. He told them, hey, I've heard these things because he was hearing from his friends. He dealt with conflict and issues that were happening among the early church that were no doubt confused and scared because their leader was in jail. God grew the church through Paul's time in Rome. I mean, in jail. You could make a really strong argument that had not, had Paul not been in jail, we may not be here today. Because those of you that know world history know that once Paul got to Rome, Rome was changed. The world changed through Paul's time in Rome. And God can change our world and our friends' world and our lives through our time, even in jail. Do we trust God, even when things don't go as expected? Now, that leads me to a bit of... um, family business. Normally, these kinds of things are reserved for our covenant family meetings, but we have an issue that has grown large enough um, that we feel it's necessary to tell everybody right here, right now, um, and to encourage you to join us for the covenant family meeting uh, in a few weeks 
when we will talk about this in further detail. But you guys have heard Pastor Ellis in the last few weeks talk about the fact that we're pretty far behind on our budget. Um, The way that church budgets work is that uh, we sit down and, uh, well, we, not not me, I I haven't been a part of this uh, uh, up until recently. And we project, we have 120 plus people coming every Sunday. On average, you guys give X amount. That means we have this much per month, which means we have this much per year, and we build a budget based on projections, some off of history, some off of hopeful growth. And uh, we're behind. We're $100,000 behind. Got to be honest, right? We didn't project well this year. And we need you guys to know that because, unfortunately, that amount of money behind is not something that can easily be made up. So we're having to make cuts. Some of those cuts are going to be salary. I'm not salaried by downtown, Calvary Church downtown, um, but Olivier is. Ellis and Ginger are. So I need you guys to, to understand when we come to you and we talk about Hey, we're behind. We don't like talking about money here at, at Gallery. It's not, it's not easy. But we're a family, and so we're bringing this to our family. Family. We're going to have to make drastic cuts. And it's going to affect people that you love and that you value. So, details on what the full plan is going to be are coming we are still working through some budgetary numbers. We're, we're doing all kinds of other little things behind the scenes to make this as palatable as possible. But you need to know we're behind. And what I need you to do because of that, the same prayers that Paul was asking, we're in the middle of. Please join us in petitioning God Almighty He owns all of it. God, we need help. For some of you guys, you are giving generously. Thank you. But unfortunately, uh, jobs take people away sometimes. and We lost a few important families last year. So please join me in prayer. God, please fix this. Please join me in that prayer. Secondly, please pray your own prayer about what you can do to be a part of that solution. I'm not going to tell you what that means or that's up to you and the Holy Spirit. But I need you to understand that the money that you give through tithes and offerings to this church, they go to feed the poor and to pay for single moms' electric bills. They also go to pay Pastor Ellis and Olivia's salary for all of the work they do to make this possible. It's It's not lying in their pockets. I promise you they could make more if they worked somewhere else. Okay? So come join us in 
March the 10th at the Covenant family meeting, we're going we're gonna to lay out details, what our plan is, how we got here, what we see God doing in the future. But until then, please join us in prayer. In faithful prayer like Paul had, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but this is your problem. And join me in praying, how can I be a part of your solution? Because all of us can, in some way, be a part of that solution. Our God is greater than any trial we will ever face. He's bigger than jail. He's bigger than finances. He's bigger than sickness. But sometimes we still face all of those things because his plan is taking us somewhere important. That's where we're trying to rest as a staff, as a family, as, as elders and leaders of this church. You're up to something, God. Help us get there. Help us get there. Help us be faithful until we are. Let's pray.